Part four of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Romulus, Part One. From whom, and for what reason, the great name of Rome, so famous among mankind, was given to that city, writers are not agreed. Some say that the Pelasgians, after wandering over most of the habitable earth, and subduing most of mankind, settled down on that side, and that from their strength in war they called their city Rome. Others say that at the taking of Troy some of its people escaped, found sailing vessels, were driven by storms upon the coast of Tuscany, and came to anchor in the river Tiber that here, while their women were perplexed and distressed at thought of the sea, one of them, who was held to be of superior birth and the greatest understanding, and whose name was Roma, proposed that they should burn the ships, that when this was done the men were angry at first, but afterwards, when they had settled of necessity on the Palatine, seeing themselves in a little while more prosperous than they had hoped, since they found the country good and their neighbours made them welcome, they paid high honours to Roma, and actually named the city after her, since she had been the occasion of their founding it. And from that time on, they say, it has been customary for the women to salute their kinsmen and husbands with a kiss, for those women, after they had burned the ships, made use of such tender salutations as they supplicated their husbands, and sought to appease their wrath. Others again say that the Roma who gave her name to the city was a daughter of Italus and Lucaria, or, in another account, of Telephus, the son of Heracles, and that she was married to Aeneas, in another version, to Ascanius, the son of Aeneas. Some tells that it was Romanus, a son of Odysseus and Circe, who colonized the city. Others that it was Romus, who was sent from Troy by Diomedes, the son of Emathion. And others still that it was Romus, tyrant of the Latins, after he had driven out the Tuscans, who passed from Thessaly into Lydia, and from Lydia into Italy. Moreover, even those writers who declare, in accordance with the most authentic tradition, that it was Romulus who gave his name to the city, do not agree about his lineage. For some say that he was the son of Aeneas and Dexithea, the daughter of Phorbas, and was brought to Italy in his infancy, along with his brother Romus, that the rest of the vessels were destroyed in the swollen river, but the one in which the boys were was gently directed to a grassy bank, where they were unexpectedly saved, and the place was called Roma from them. Others say it was Roma, a daughter of the Trojan woman I have mentioned, who was wedded to Latinus, the son of Telemachus, and bore him Romulus. Others that Emilia, the daughter of Aeneas and Lavinia, bore him to Mars. And others still rehearse what is altogether fabulous concerning his origin. For instance, they say that Tarchetius, king of the Albans, who was most lawless and cruel, was visited with a strange phantom in his house, namely, a phallus rising out of the hearth and remaining there many days. Now there was an oracle of Tethys in Tuscany, from which there was brought to Tarchetius a response that a virgin must have intercourse with this phantom, and she should bear a son most illustrious for his valour, and of surpassing good fortune and strength. Tarchetius, accordingly, told the prophecy to one of his daughters, and bade her consort with the phantom. But she disdained to do so, and sent a handmaid into it. When Tarchetius learned of this, he was wroth, and seized both the maidens, proposing to put them to death. But the goddess Hestia appeared to him in his sleep, and forbade him the murder. He therefore imposed upon the maidens the weaving of a certain web in their imprisonment, assuring them that when they had finished the weaving of it, they should then be given in marriage.' 
By day, then, these maidens wove, but by night other maidens, at the command of Tarchetius, unravelled their web. And when the handmaid became the mother of twin children by the phantom, Tarchetius gave them to a certain Tereus, with orders to destroy them. This man, however, carried them to the riverside and laid them down there. Then a she-wolf visited the babes and gave them suck, while all sorts of birds brought morsels of food and put them into their mouths, until a cowherd spied them, conquered his amazement, ventured to come to them, and took the children home with him. Thus they were saved, and when they were grown up, they set upon Tarchetius and overcame him. At any rate, this is what a certain Promethean says, who compiled a history of Italy. But the story which has the widest credence and the greatest number of vouchers was first published among the Greeks, in its principal details by Diocles of Peperethus, and Fabius Pictor follows him in most points. Here again there are variations in the story, but its general outline is as follows. The descendants of Aeneas reigned as kings in Alba, and the succession devolved at length upon two brothers, Numitor and Amulius. Amulius divided the whole inheritance into two parts, setting the treasures and the gold which had been brought from Troy over against the kingdom, and Numitor chose the kingdom. Amulius, then, in possession of the treasure, and made more powerful by it than Numitor, easily took the kingdom away from his brother, and, fearing lest that brother's daughter should have children, made her a priestess of Vesta, bound to live unwedded and a virgin all her days. Her name is variously given as Ilia, or Rhea, or Sylvia. Not long after this she was discovered to be with child, contrary to the established laws for the Vestals. She did not, however, suffer the capital punishment which was her due, because the king's daughter, Antho, interceded successfully in her behalf, but she was kept in solitary confinement, that she might not be delivered without the knowledge of Amulius. Delivered she was of two boys, and their size and beauty were more than human. Wherefore Amulius was all the more afraid, and ordered a servant to take the boys and cast them away. This servant's name was Faustulus, according to some, but others give this name to the man who took the boys up. Obeying the king's orders, the servant put the babes into a trough and went down towards the river, proposing to cast them in. But when he saw that the stream was much swollen and violent, he was afraid to go close up to it, and setting his burden down near the bank, went his way. Then the overflow of the swollen river took and bore up the trough, floating it gently along, and carried it down to a fairly smooth spot which is now called Kermulus, but formerly Germanus, perhaps because brothers are called Germani. Now there was a wild fig tree hard by, which they called Ruminalis, either from Romulus, as is generally thought, or because cut-shoeing, or ruminating, animals spent the noontide there for the sake of the shade, or, best of all, from the suckling of the babes there. For the ancient Romans called the teat Ruma, and a certain goddess who is thought to preside over the rearing of young children is still called Rumilia, in sacrificing to whom no wine is used, and libations of milk are poured over her victims. Here then the babes lay, and the she-wolf, the story, here gave them suck, and the woodpecker came to help in feeding them, and to watch over them. Now these creatures are considered sacred to Mars, and the woodpecker is held in a special veneration and honour by the Latins, and this was the chief reason why the mother was believed when she declared that Mars was the father of her babes. And yet it is said that she was deceived into doing this, and was really deflowered by Emilius himself, who came to her in armour and ravished her. But some say that the name of the children's nurse, by its ambiguity, deflected the story into the realm of the fabulous. 
for the Latins not only called she-wolves Lupe, but also women of loose character, and such a woman was the wife of Faustulus, the foster-father of the infants, Acar Larentia by name. Yet the Romans sacrifice also to her, and in the month of April the priest of Mars pours libations in her honour, and the festival is called Larentalia. They pay honours also to another Larentia for the following reason. The keeper of the temple of Hercules, being at a loss for something to do, as it seems, proposed to the god a game of dice, with the understanding that if he won it himself, he should get some valuable present from the god, but if he lost, he would furnish the god with a bounteous repast and a lovely woman to keep him company for the night. On these terms the dice were thrown, first for the god, then for himself, when it appeared that he had lost. Wishing to keep faith, and thinking it right to abide by the contract, he prepared a banquet for the god, and engaging Laurentia, who was then in the bloom of her beauty, but not yet famous, he feasted her in the temple, where he had spread a couch, and after the supper locked her in, assured, of course, that the god would take possession of her. And verily, it is said that the god did visit the woman, and bade her go early in the morning to the forum, salute the first man who met her, and make him her friend." She was met, accordingly, by one of the citizens, who was well on in years, and possessed of considerable property, but childless, and unmarried all his life, by name Tarusius. This man took Laurentia to his bed, and loved her well, and at his death left her heir to many and fair possessions, most of which she bequeathed to the people. And it is said that when she was now famous and regarded as the beloved of a god, she disappeared at the spot where the former Laurentia also lies buried. This spot is now called Velabrum, because when the river overflowed, as it often did, they used to cross it at about this point in ferry-boats, to go to the Forum, and the word for ferry is Velatura. But some say that it is so called because from that point on the street leading to the Hippodrome from the Forum is covered over with sails by the givers of a public spectacle, and the Roman word for sail is Vellum. It is for these reasons that honours are paid to this second Laurentia amongst the Romans. As for the babes, they were taken up and reared by Faustulus, a swineherd of Amulius, and no man knew of it. Or, as some say, with a closer approach to probability, Numitor did know of it, and secretly aided the foster-parents in their task. And it is said that the boys were taken to Gabii to learn letters, and the other branches of knowledge, which are meet for those of noble birth. Moreover, we are told that they were named, from Ruma, the Latin word for teal, Romulus and Romus, or Remus, because they were seen sucking the wild beast. Well, the noble size and beauty of their bodies, even when they were infants, betokened their natural disposition, and when they grew up they were both of them courageous and manly, with spirits which courted apparent danger, and a daring which nothing could terrify. But Romulus seemed to exercise his judgment more, and to have political sagacity, while in his intercourse with their neighbours in matters pertaining to herding and hunting, he gave them the impression that he was born to command, rather than to obey. With their equals or inferiors they were therefore on friendly terms, but they looked down upon the overseers, and chief herdsmen of the king, believing them to be no better men than themselves, and disregarded both their threats and their anger. They also applied themselves to generous occupations and pursuits, not esteeming sloth and idleness generous, but rather bodily exercise, hunting, running, driving off robbers, capturing thieves, and rescuing the oppressed from violence. For these things, indeed, they were famous far and near. When a quarrel arose between the herdsmen of Numitor and Amulius, and some of the latter's cattle were driven off, the brothers would not suffer it, but fell upon the robbers, put them to flight, and intercepted most of the booty. 
to the displeasure of Numitor, they gave little heed, but collected and took into their company many needy men and many slaves, exhibiting thus the beginnings of seditious boldness and temper. But once, when Romulus was busily engaged in some sacrifice, being fond of sacrifices and of divination, the herdsman of Numitor fell in with Remus as he was walking with few companions, and a battle ensued. After blows and wounds given and received on both sides, the herdsman of Numitor prevailed and took Remus prisoner, who was then carried before Numitor and denounced. Numitor himself did not punish his prisoner, because he was in fear of his brother Amelius, who was severe, but went to Amelius and asked for justice, since he was his brother, and had been insulted by the royal servants. The people of Alba, too, were incensed, and thought that Numitor had been undeservedly outraged. Amelius was therefore induced to hand Remus over to Numitor himself, to treat him as he saw fit. When Numitor came home, after getting Remus into his hands, he was amazed at the young man's complete superiority in stature and strength of body, and perceiving by his countenance that the boldness and vigour of his soul were unsubdued and unharmed by his present circumstances, and hearing that his acts and deeds corresponded with his looks, but chiefly, as it would seem, because a divinity was aiding and assisting in the inauguration of great events, he grasped the truth by a happy conjecture, and asked him who he was, and what were the circumstances of his birth, while his gentle voice and kindly look inspired the youth with confidence and hope. Then Remus boldly said, "'Indeed, I will hide nothing from thee, for thou seemst to be more like a king than Amelius. Thou nearest and weighest before punishing, but he surrenders men without a trial.' Formerly we believed ourselves, my twin brother and I, children of Faustulus and Laurentia, servants of the king. But since being accused and slandered before thee, and brought in peril of our lives, we hear great things concerning ourselves. Whether they are true or not, our present danger is likely to decide. Our birth is said to have been secret, and our nursing and nurture as infants stranger still. We were cast out to birds of prey and wild beasts, only to be nursed by them, by the ducks of a she-wolf and the morsels of a woodpecker, as we lay in a little trough by the side of the great river. The trough still exists, and is kept safe, and its bronze girdles are engraved with letters now almost effaced, which may perhaps hereafter prove unavailing tokens of recognition for our parents when we are dead and gone. Then Numitor, hearing these words, and conjecturing the time which had elapsed from the young man's looks, welcomed the hope that flattered him, and thought how he might talk with his daughter concerning these matters in a secret interview, for she was still kept in the closest custody. But Faustulus, on hearing that Remus had been seized and delivered up to Numitor, called upon Romulus to go to his aid, and then told him clearly the particulars of their birth. Before this also he had hinted at the matter darkly, and revealed enough to give them ambitious thoughts when they dwelt upon it. He himself took the trow and went to see Numitor, full of anxious fear lest he might not be in season. Naturally enough, the guards at the king's gate were suspicious of him, and when he was scrutinized by them and made confused replies to their questions, he was found to be concealing the trow in his cloak. Now by chance there was among the guards one of those who had taken the boys to cast them into the river, and were concerned in their exposure. This man, now seeing the trow, and recognizing it by its make and inscription, conceived the suspicion of the truth, and without any delay told the matter to the king and brought the men before him to be examined. In these dire and pressing straits, Faustulus did not entirely hold his own, nor yet was his secret wholly forced from him. He admitted that the boys were alive and well, but said they lived at a distance from Alba as herdsmen. He himself was carrying the trial to Ilia, who had often yearned to see and handle it, in confirmation of her hope for her children. 
As, then, men naturally fare who are confounded, and act with fear or in a passion, so it fell out that Amulius fared. For he sent in all haste an excellent man and a friend of Numitor's, with orders to learn from Numitor whether any report had come to him of the children's being alive. When, accordingly, the man was come, and beheld Remus almost in the affectionate embraces of Numitor, he confirmed them in their confident hope, and entreated them to proceed at once to action, promptly joining their party himself, and furthering their cause, and the opportunity admitted of no delay, even had they wished it, for Romulus was now close at hand, and many of the citizens who hated and feared Amulius were running forth to join him. He was also leading a large force with him, divided into companies of a hundred men, each company headed by a man who bore aloft a handful of hay and shrubs tied round a pole. The Latin word for handful is manipulus, and hence in their armies they still call the men in such companies manipularis. And when Remus incited the citizens within the city to revolt, and at the same time Romulus attacked from without, the tyrant, without taking a single step, or making any plan for his own safety, from sheer perplexity and confusion, was seized and put to death. Although most of these particulars are related by Fabius and Diocles of Peperethus, who seems to have been the first to publish a founding of Rome, some are suspicious of their fictitious and fabulous quality. But we should not be incredulous when we see what a poet fortune sometimes is, and when we reflect that the Roman state would not have attained to its present power had it not been of a divine origin, and one which was attended by great marvels. Amulius being now dead, and Metus settled in the city, the brothers were neither willing to live in Alba, unless as its rulers, nor to be its rulers while their grandfather was alive. Having therefore restored the government to him, and paid fitting honours to their mother, they resolved to dwell by themselves, and to found a city in the region where, at the first, they were nourished and sustained. This surely seems a most fitting reason for their cause. But perhaps it was necessary, now that many slaves and fugitives were gathered about them, either to disperse these and have no following at all, or else to dwell apart with them for that the residents of Alba would not consent to give the fugitives the privilege of intermarriage with them, nor even receive them as fellow-citizens, is clear, in the first place, from the rape of the Sabine women, which was not a deed of wanton daring, but one of necessity, owing to the lack of marriages by consent, for they certainly honoured the women, when they had carried them off, beyond measure. And in the second place, when their city was first founded, they made a sanctuary of refuge for all fugitives, which they called the sanctuary of the god of asylum. There they received all who came, delivering none up, neither slave to masters, nor debtor to creditors, nor murderer to magistrates, but declaring it to be in obedience to an oracle from Delphi that they made the asylum secure for all men. Therefore the city was soon full of people, for they say that the first houses numbered no more than a thousand. This, however, was later. But when they set out to establish their city, a dispute at once arose concerning the site. Romulus, accordingly, built Roma Quadrata, which means square, and wished to have the city on that site. But Remus laid out a strong precinct on the Aventine Hill, which was named from him Remonium, but now is called Regnarium. Agreeing to settle their quarrel by the flight of birds of omen, and taking their seats on the ground apart from one another, six vultures, they say, were seen by Remus, and twice that number by Romulus. Some, however, say that whereas Remus truly saw his six, Romulus lied about his twelve, but that when Remus came to him, then he did see the twelve. 
Hence it is that at the present time also the Romans chiefly regard vultures when they take auguries from the flight of birds. Herodorus Ponticus relates that Hercules also was glad to see a vulture present itself when he was upon an exploit, for it is the least harmful of all creatures, injures no grain, fruit tree, or cattle, and lives on carrion. But it does not kill or maltreat anything that has life, and as for birds, it will not touch them even when they are dead, since they are of its own species. But eagles, owls, and hawks smite their own kind when alive, and kill them. And yet, in the words of Aeschylus, how shall a bird that preys on fellow-bird be clean? Besides, other birds are, so to speak, always in our eyes, and let themselves be seen continually. But the vulture is a rare sight, and it is not easy to come upon a vulture's young. Nay, some men have been led into a strange suspicion that the birds come from some other and foreign land to visit us here, so rare and intermittent is their appearance, which soothsayers think should be true of what does not present itself naturally, nor spontaneously, but by a divine sending. When Remus knew of the deceit, he was enraged, and as Romulus was digging a trench where his city's wall was to run, he ridiculed some parts of the work and obstructed others. At last, when he leapt across it, he was smitten, by Romulus himself, as some say, according to others, by Sela, one of his companions, and fell dead there. Faustulus also fell in the battle, as well as Plessinus, who was a brother of Faustulus, and assisted him in rearing Romulus and Remus. Sela, at any rate, betook himself to Tuscany, and from him the Romans call such as are swift and speedy Silerus. Quintus Metellus, for instance, when his father died, took only a few days to provide gladiatorial contests in his honour, and the people were so amazed at his speed in preparing them that they gave him the surname of Sila. Romulus buried Remus, together with his foster-fathers, in the Ramonia, and then set himself to building his city, after summoning from Tuscany men who prescribed all the details in accordance with certain sacred ordinances and writings, and taught them to him as in a religious rite. A circular trench was dug around what is now the Comitium, and in this were deposited first fruits of all things, the use of which was sanctioned by custom as good and by nature as necessary. And finally, every man brought a small portion of the soil of his native land, and these were cast in among the first fruits and mingled with them. They call this trench, as they do the heavens, by the name of Mundus. Then, taking this as a centre, they marked out the city in a circle round it and the founder, having shot a plough with a brazen ploughshare, and having yoked to it a bull and a cow, himself drove a deep furrow round the boundary lines, while those who followed after him had to turn the clots which the plough threw up inwards towards the city, and suffer no clot to lie turned outwards. With this line they mark out the course of the wall, and it is called, by contraction, pomerium, that is, postmurum, behind or next the wall and where they proposed to put in a gate, there they took the share out of the ground, lifted the plough over, and left a vacant space. And this is the reason why they regard all the wall as sacred except the gates. But if they held the gates sacred, it would not be possible, without religious scruples, to bring into and send out of the city things which are necessary and yet unclean. End of Romulus Part 1